You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Ben's preaching through a series on Elijah and Elijah, and we are in 2 Kings, the first chapter, 1 through 18. It's uh, one of the historical books, about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament. And if you could stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Azuah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling him, go, inquire of Bazabub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from the sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Bazabub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It's because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbit. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is a king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third, fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, 
Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jerohim became king in his place in the second year of Jerohim, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahazah had no son. Now the acts of Ahaziah that he did are not, they are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, this is the last story uh, of, the, of the Elijah story. So we move on to Elisha next week. It's the transition next week. But uh, the nemesis uh, of Elijah, his whole, his whole life was Ahab, uh, the King Ahab. He was like the Joker or Lex Luthor, you know, whatever, Moriarty to uh, Sherlock Holmes. He was the nemesis of Elijah, and now he's dead. So uh, now his son is on the throne, Ahaziah, uh, King Ahaziah. And... Um, King Ahaziah is not on his throne very long. He falls through uh, this, this lattice work, and um, he's on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, uh, what does he do? He goes right back to what he's always done, is he calls on this idol. He calls on Baal, the god of fertility, the god of life, the god of strength. Uh, and um, that's all he knows how to do. But, it, you know, Baal is this worthless. It's like checking your horoscope or... A Ouija board or something like that, rolling the dice or, you know, something like superstitious. That's kind of what he's doing, asking whether he's going to live or not. And Elijah's final mission, should he choose to accept it, is to go in there and to confront, uh, in the king's chamber, to confront Ahaziah, which is the very thing that he was um, running from way back uh, in chapter 19 when he took off, left the ministry, and fled to Mount Sinai. He's now being asked by God at the very end of his life, go back into the king's chamber and confront the king of Israel one last time. So he's risking his life. He's going back to the place of his greatest hurt. And uh, he is going to um, ask Ahaziah to come back to the Lord. He's going to ask Ahaziah to repent and return. So I want to look at this distinction between these two men. So Ahaziah uh, is the most powerful man in Israel, but he is desperate for control. You know, he's flailing around, calling on the god uh, Baal of Ekron, looking for some way to control things. And then you've got Elijah, who might be the least powerful person in Israel, because he's this hunted prophet. He's living out in the wilderness, you know, with his John the Baptist-like clothes. And uh, although he has no power at all, he is completely at peace. He's just sitting there on that hill, kind of like, I just imagine him, like, with his, you know, his hands open, Indian style, on the hill, just watching what's going to happen, and um, not afraid in some ways. Um, at least after the angel speaks to him, he's not afraid. He just goes down. So this contrast of trying to control your life, I mean, the most power that you could possibly have, you know, the, the president of the United States or whatever, versus somebody who has no power, but they're at peace. And part of the lesson here is that power does not make you feel better about life. You might think that if you can get more control, you'll feel better. That's not true. So I want to contrast these two uh, the, the control and then the trust, which are kind of the opposite of one another. So after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel, verse 1. And when a powerful king would die, and Ahab was a very powerful king. He's mentioned outside the Bible. So uh, he was a pretty famous guy in the ancient Near East. And when a powerful king dies, their colonies will often rebel. 
They're looking for that moment where there's a shift in power, and they're looking for a weakness. And here's the weakness, and so Moab rebels. And we're actually going to come back to that in two weeks. For now, it just tells you there's, that Ahaziah's reign is not going well because uh, Moab has rebelled. And if, if that's a bad start, then the next thing is even worse. And somebody's trying to tell him something. He should know that. That first Moab rebels, and then it says in verse 2, he fell through a second-story window in his palace. It's not really lattice work. I don't even know what that means, but it's a window. And I have never fallen out of a window. I think it's hard to fall out of a window. I don't know anybody who has fallen out of a window. And I imagine you've got to be pretty drunk to fall out of a window. So he should know that um, you know, somebody's trying to get his attention. But um, instead of uh, calling out to God, uh, you would finally think that in the ICU he would see his helplessness. You know, in that place is where you could really finally, like my dad did, you know, at the very end of his life in hospice, he finally lets go, gives in, trusts in God. Ahaziah does exactly the opposite. He goes right back to control. And my wife, uh, who is in the hospital a lot, has seen a lot of people at the very end of their life, and she says people usually go one way or the other. They go to control or they go to trust. They either let go. And it's a good question to ask yourself, what are you going to do on your deathbed? Well, he inquires, which is not really an inquiry, of Baalzebub, whether he will live, verse 2. Which sounds like not a big deal. He's just curious. You know, am I going to live or not? Um, but he doesn't really want to know whether he's going to live because God tells him you're going to die, and he keeps asking. So it's not really that he wants to know whether he's going to live. He completely ignores what God says about him. Um, it's kind of like when I was an atheist and I would inquire about God's existence with my Catholic roommate. I really wasn't inquiring. I wanted to have a debate with him. I had no interest in moving towards believing in God at all at that point in my life. So this is not really an inquiry. This is a manipulation. Uh, this is bargaining. This is how idols work. You bargain with your idols. You say, I'll give you this if you give me this. Um, there was a, a famous uh, company called Halliburton. Um, when President Bush uh, invaded Iraq, um, Halliburton had donated millions of dollars to the Bush campaign. And so, of course, then when they inquired whether they would get the contract to help build back um, Iraq, they were granted the contract. They were inquiring, but it's kind of like Ahab. They weren't really inquiring. They were more like bargaining. They were manipulating. Um, basically, verse 2 should be like, sacrifice a few of the best cows we have and then inquire whether I will die or not. He's not really asking. He's basically making a bid to Baal. And notice that he is called Baal Zebub. Um, his actual name is Baal Zebul, which means Baal the Majestic. But if you change one letter in Hebrew, it goes to Baal Zebub, which is Baal is crap, essentially. Or another word, if you can think of another word for that. Um, that's essentially what it's saying. Sometimes it's translated Lord of the Flies. It's only flies because that's what gathers around stuff like that. So it's saying that Baal is worthless. Um, I don't know why this popped in my mind, but I thought about Donald Trump mocking Marco Rubio, calling him Little Marco. Just over and over again, I mean, I'm not comparing Donald Trump to Yahweh, but it's kind of like... <laughs> You know, or, or low-energy Jeb. He would just, God just chooses his word for Baal, and so he just keeps calling him Baalzebub, which must just drive the kings of Israel crazy, that this is the God they're calling on, Baal the Majestic, and he keeps calling him Baalzebub, uh, the God of worthlessness. Because especially at the end of his life, this is a worthless God. Uh, this is a God, uh, as so often people turn to, that cannot help you at all. 
and you can't bargain at the end of your life. Um, you're not in a position of bargaining anymore. He should know that. And this is why Yahweh is so passionate to seek Ahaziah's attention. He's not being cruel. He's being loving. He's coming for him. And he says in verse 6, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are inquiring of Baalzebub? And this is what this poor messenger, I feel sorry for this messenger, he left Ahaziah's presence. He was supposed to go to Ekron to inquire of Baal, but right when he gets out the door, there's Elijah. And he's like, you need to go back in there and tell him this message. And so 10 minutes later, the messenger's back, trembling with fear, and Ahaziah sits, you know, bolt upright, and he's like, is there no God in what? What is this God of Israel? And you can imagine just the anger at this, he probably had the messenger killed, um, but he's like, what kind of man was this in verse 7? And he has heard from his dad that there was this guy that was a troublemaker. He doesn't yet know, he probably heard a few details about him, and so when the messenger says he wore these strange clothes, verse 8, and he looked like he mostly lived outside in the desert, then Ahaziah spits in verse 8 and says, it is Elijah the Tishbite, who he's heard about but never met. And he's so mad that Yahweh would challenge his will as the king, uh, that he actually sends out 50 troops to silence God's messenger. I mean, think about that as a response to God coming to him and personally inviting him to repent. What he does is he sends out, it'd be like the Emperor Palpatine sending out 50 stormtroopers to silence little tiny Yoda. That's what he's doing. Elijah's just sitting there on a rock in verse 9, you know, just hanging out, eating a sandwich or something. He's like not doing anything threatening. He's this tiny little old man, this little prophet, with nothing, like his garb is as cheap as you could get. He's got no power at all. And all of a sudden he's looking on the horizon, there's a small army of like war horses and spears galloping over the horizon. 50 armed men versus one little tiny prophet. And he, they weren't going out there just to inquire. They're going out there to kill him. Why would you have 50 people in armor? So this is how much Ahaziah is demanding that he maintain control of his life, that he demands that he be sovereign, that he sit on the throne, that he's not going to bargain um, with Yahweh. He, 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 is, um, he is not going to give in to Yahweh. And um, the question that I think that leads us to ask ourselves, we're not on the throne of Israel, but we have, some, we have a little world around us that we have some control over, probably not as much control as we think. But the question is, um, how much do you fear that God might thwart your sovereignty, uh, that when God comes in to take away control of your life and something happens that you didn't expect or you don't like, uh, that you, um, you get really angry. You get angry at God. You might still be angry at God about something he did to thwart your control. Um, when things go wrong in my world, I don't consult Baal. I start cleaning. I start uh, frenetically sweeping out my car or shaving obsessively. Um, and I'm desperate to find something to control, no matter how small it is. Um, I have this rage for order that comes out. And you might be saying, well, he has OCD. Uh, but I would say it could be a lot worse, right? You know, what do you turn to when you're worried about money, when you feel like your life's falling apart financially? You could easily turn to drink or video games or social media or drugs or porn. 85% of Americans right now are anxious about the state of their finances, about the amount of money they have, because things are looking not great. And so 
Maybe it's finances for you, or maybe it's um, the safety of your children is a big one for people who have ch uh, children. For some reason, that can really trigger anxiety. If, if you're worried about your child um, not being okay at every moment, uh, it can just generate a massive amount of anxiety. And uh, what do you turn to? You know, where do you go at that moment? Or do you try to bargain and uh, manipulate and try to get God to do something, or do you, do you trust him? It could be the state of your marriage, or it could be your social life. And you might be thinking, well, of course I'm anxious. My, my whole world is spinning out of control. And uh, you know, it might be your job, or your health, or your grades, or your house, or your car. Cars can be really frustrating. Um, but I think what we really mean is not that they're spiraling out of control. We, what we're really saying is they're spiraling out of my control. They're, they're not out of God's control. They're never out of God's control. God is always very much in control. And not only that, but you can trust that he is running the universe a lot better than you would run it if you knew what he knew. And uh, he's been doing it a very long time. And so we can have utter confidence that when things are out of our control, they are not out of the one who is good and righteous and just. They're not out of his control at all. So that's what calls us to trust. And now we're talking about Elijah instead of Ahaziah. Uh, this is where God is asking us to go. This is where, as we think about and meditate on Elijah, um, that's the type of person we want to be. So again, verse 9, the king sends these 50 men to Elijah sitting on a hill. And you can imagine the first captain's feeling very good about himself. Uh, like when Kylo Ren strides out of the spaceship with the stormtroopers in that first of the, the most recent movies, and he's, he's there to massacre Ray's village, and there's no resistance at all. And he's feeling very confident. And I imagine that's what this captain's feeling. And you know, whenever that happens in a movie, they start taunting everybody. Have you noticed that? That the first they've got to taunt a lot before they actually kill. And so this guy in verse 9, he says, essentially, you pathetic little man of God. The king says, the real king says, come down now. So this is mockery. You can't necessarily see that in the English translation, but he is making fun of Elijah and of Yahweh. And the second one is even more arrogant than the first one because the second one has already seen what's happened, and it doesn't deter him at all. And so he says in verse 11, uh, he adds, the king commands you to come down immediately. Immediately. So he is um, he's essentially ordering the mouthpiece of God around. And Elijah has uh, no power, no control. And if you know Elijah's character, back when he was under the broom tree and on Mount Sinai, um, you can imagine he's very tempted at this point to going back to that place uh, where he wanted to die, where he wanted to give up on life, that his body is probably flooding with those same emotions, because that's, that's how we work. Our bodies do that. When we get back in the same situation, then that happens to us, where he received that death threat from Jezebel, it's the same situation right here, except they're right in front of him. But rather than running away, which he probably could have done on the other side of the hill, uh, he takes this incredibly risky leap of faith. And, you know, I've prayed for healing and thought I was putting myself out there, but this is, like, way next level. He says in verse 10, if I am a man of God, this is kind of somewhere between a prayer and uh, a conversation with the captain. But he kind of goes from a conversation with the captain into a prayer to God. He says, if I am a man of God, then let fire come and consume all of you. All of this violence, all of this hatred of God, you know, all of this uh, resistance 
to trust and faith. Let it be destroyed. And this is not personal vengeance. Um, this is not like he has a vendetta or he's resentful. This is giving up control to the one who judges justly. And the one who is merciful, he's throwing himself on God's mercy and trusting God to protect him. But sure enough, verse 19, fire comes down from heaven and consumes all the empire's arrogance and wipes out those 50. And this is a man who quit the ministry, who left the promised land, Elijah, he gave up on life. But now, verse 15, the angel of the Lord, and that's always a reference to Jesus. Before he becomes incarnate, this is the son of God, the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you have like a, uh, this transcendent aspect of Yahweh, where he is above and outside of time and creation. But there's also this imminent Yahweh who walks alongside his people, who's there again and again and again, talking to Noah, talking to Abraham, talking to Jacob, wrestling with Jacob, talking to Joseph. He's just always with his people, David. That's the angel of the Lord. He's, he meets Joshua before he goes into the promised land. The angel of the Lord should always be capitalized A and then L because this is like, this is not just any angel. This is the messenger, the son. And he comes to um, Elijah, his good old friend, one more time on that rock. And he speaks these words into him. He says, do not be afraid of him. And in saying that, the fear is taken away. It's like, have you ever had somebody pray for you? And in praying for you, as they're praying for you, you feel like your heart is becoming like steel or like you're fuel injected with courage. I've had that happen. That happened the other night when I actually needed to sleep really badly, could not sleep at all. Big day the next day. My wife calls, she prays for me, and I could feel, sometimes you just feel words going into your heart and strengthening you, which is why we should pray for one another, like right there, out loud, in the moment. But he is so fortified. Obviously, he was afraid, or the angel wouldn't say, don't be afraid. So he was very afraid. But he is so fortified by the prayer of this angel, um, by the words, simply, do not be afraid. Um, by those words, he is so fortified that he goes down off the rock, and he walks into the throne room, like the locus of the pain of his life, where he was... Um, his greatest fear, he met his greatest fear there, Jezebel. And it says that uh, he went with the captain to talk to the king. And um, one of my favorite characters in literature is Eustace Scrub. If you've read uh, Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you haven't read that book, um, he, is, uh, he doesn't really believe in Narnia, but then suddenly he finds himself in Narnia, and he just starts mocking the fact that this is a world at all, like he doesn't really believe it's real. He's complaining, he's fragile, he's fearful, he's a coward, he's selfish. He's on this ship, the Dawn Treader, but he won't do anything. And he's so dragonish, his thoughts are so dragonish, is what C.S. Lewis calls them, that he becomes a dragon. And then he's very lonely and isolated, and um, he doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know how to communicate, he doesn't know how to be with his people anymore. And so uh, Aslan the Lion has to come and meets with him and says, this is going to hurt. And he undresses him. He takes this huge claw and he puts it right through uh, his scaly outside and pulls off the dragon skin and releases uh, Eustace Scrub. And then Eustace Scrub is the first one to go fight the sea monster because he has faced that fear. He's been transformed by Aslan, who's obviously a picture of Jesus, and he is the first to fight. And um, 
I think the thing that injects courage into my heart um, when I'm afraid, uh, probably more than anything, is actually this table, which um, is one reason I love church, is because we get to come to a place where words are combined with actual food, so you're not only eating it, but you're hearing the words confirming what's going into your mouth, and just as real as that stuff goes into your mouth and you can taste it, so real are those words. This is the body of Christ for you. This is the blood of Christ for you. And it gives you strength. And really at this table, we're simply asking one word. It's just please, please have mercy on me. That's what the captain of the third group of 50 says in verse 13. He says, please let the life of me and my friends be precious in your sight. And he, he is there uh, ready to kill. He's probably killed a lot of people before. He's, he's there to kill Elijah and all these violent men with him. But all he says is one word, please. And God forgives him, welcomes them into his kingdom. Uh, I imagine these people were part of the revival that was going to come later when Elisha comes. These 50 and this captain. Uh, you can imagine that he wouldn't sacrifice to Baal after that or manipulate the gods. Um, all it takes is saying, please. I think that's what really separates Jesus from any other great moral teacher or religious figure, is that all you do is you come to him like this and say, please, I, I need you to forgive me. And all the other 50 are caught up in the repentance of that one man. They're all spared because he asked for forgiveness. So the question is not, you know, when I first read the passage, I was like, how could God destroy 100 men in fire? That seems so wrong and so cruel. But all they had to do was repent. All that Ahaziah had to do was repent. He wouldn't have died. But they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't say please. But this captain, the question is really not how could he let them die, but how could he let these 50 live who did nothing but ask for mercy at the very end of their life? And that's all we have to do at this table. Uh, we don't bring anything. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. And that's what this is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. So if you're here and uh, you don't really... Uh, know what to do right now. Uh, I, I've been there many times when I was an atheist. I would come to church, and when this happened, I was kind of dreading this, like, what do I do? Is anybody going to be watching me? And I would just say what I would say to myself, don't feel any pressure to come at all. And nobody's watching, um, or if they are, they're not going to be upset. They're just going to be glad you're here. I, we're glad you're here. Uh, God's glad you're here. It takes a lot of courage to come here and, and not be sure what to do right now. And so... Um, don't feel any pressure to partake. But, but if you are going to partake, just remember that the only criteria is please and an open hand. That uh, it's not because we're good or better or more spiritual or wiser than anyone. It's simply because we cry out for mercy. So on the night that he was betrayed and on the night that uh, the human race was at its lowest ebb, and um, most deceitful, um, most in trying to retain control. I mean, killing, killing Jesus was the ultimate attempt to maintain control of the planet. But on that night where we were about to kill him, he broke bread. He said, this is not happening by accident. I've got this. I'm, I'm not afraid. I know it's about to happen. And I'm giving you my body beforehand. I'm telling you beforehand, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever we eat the body, 
the bread and drink from the wine, the cup. Uh, we are proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes again. So let me pray as we approach his table. Angel of the Lord, Lord Jesus, you were burned up ultimately by the fire, the wrath of God. Your wrath is even more on display in the New Testament than the Old because uh, you bore all that. Um, you turned it aside. You accepted it humbly. Uh, you received it. You asked to receive it. You asked to drink from the cup. Um, and we praise you that simply by saying, please have mercy, that you bring us all the way in. You do all the work. You come all the way down. You lift us all the way back up. And this table is such a beautiful depiction of that. Give us courage, Lord. Help us trust you like Elijah. Help us face our fears to walk back into places where redemption needs to happen, not away from them, but back into them, like Elijah did, back into the throne room. Um, help us to be brave, much braver than we are right now. And we pray this So if you want the grape Remember, we love these rascals.